Good day to all. My name is Dr. Elijah Sadafel. Welcome to What Christians Should Know, Part 8, The Church. Here are some questions that many churchgoers do not often consider. What is the biblical definition of the church and what function does it serve? Why should anyone go to church and what do you expect it to do in a church? From prior lessons, it is now clear that the five core principles of Christianity do not include a quote-unquote church of any kind. So what value does the church add to the Christian's life? As I shall explain, the church is more than a building or an institution. It serves as a mechanism to nurture, cultivate, and develop existing believers, as well as to evangelize new ones. It is also a place where people can assemble in order to praise and worship God, participate in baptism and communion, and fellowship with others. The church is not responsible for salvation, does not atone for sins, and does not mediate between us and the Father. Only Jesus does those things. And logically speaking, this makes perfect sense because as we have learned, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. The entire process is God-dependent. The church, therefore, has no monopoly on God, nor does it have any ultimate power over your eternal life. Certainly, going to church and being an active member of a church does not make anyone righteous. Only the Lord knows who are His, and it therefore becomes futile for any of us to decide otherwise. Although the word church is used loosely in modern society, there are actually very specific biblical prescriptions for what the church is and what it ought to do. The church unifies and brings people together. As Ephesians 2.14 says, In Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barriers of the dividing wall. As we shall discuss, members of the body of Christ can be distinct, but they are not separate because all are joined together under the common banner of Jesus. Distinction, therefore, does not equal separation. Finally, one thing to keep in mind when studying the nature and functions of the church is to pay very close attention to the Holy Spirit who plays a leading role in the life of the church. Jesus, who was the head of the church, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit anointed Jesus at his baptism and at the start of Jesus' public ministry. In fact, just before Jesus did begin his public ministry, he read a scroll from Isaiah 61 that read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Hence, a church that is Spirit-filled and Spirit-led means being like Jesus, who was anointed, equipped, and empowered to do His earthly ministry by the Holy Spirit. The entire point of the church, then, is to continue the ministry of Jesus as he instructed his disciples in the Great Commission. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, of course, from Matthew 28:19. In other words, God sent Jesus, and now through the church, Jesus sends us. 1. What is the church? 
What Christians should know is that the church is the faithful community of all those who are saved and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Jesus is the head of the church. The modern church begins in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descends from heaven on the day of Pentecost. There we learn that many were together in one place when the Holy Spirit filled the people who began speaking in foreign tongues. Subsequently, devout men from every nation came together and were amazed because they heard the gospel in their own language. This unified the people for a common good under a common banner and reversed the division and separation that happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. This event coincides with the biblical narrative that when God saves people, he brings them together, and when he judges, he separates them. The Apostle Peter then preaches a sermon, testifies the saving power of Jesus, and the result was that when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those who received the gospel and were baptized began continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common, day by day continuing with one mind, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day. So what is the church? A short version is found in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit empowering people and turning people's hearts and minds towards Jesus. This is a paradigm that transcends traditions and institutions and is a totally free and voluntary act open to any and all those who will hear and receive the good news. The Greek word for church is ecclesia, meaning a religious congregation or an assembly of members on earth or of saints in heaven or both. Accordingly, the church is not one physical structure fixed in time, but a timeless institution that transcends space and location. The church is both a tangible and a figurative organization. It is for the church that Christ gave up his life. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The word church did not become familiar in the Bible until the writing of the New Testament, but the Old Testament offers several examples of God calling together a faithful community of those who believed in him. In Acts 7.38, for example, the martyr Stephen uses the word ecclesia to refer to the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word most frequently in order to translate the Hebrew word for assembly or to gather, kahal, Q-A-H-A-L. Christ gave himself up for all of humanity, both past, present, and future. The church is the body of Christ that is ruled by Jesus. That authority to rule was granted by God. Ephesians 1, 22-23 says, And he put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus exclusively builds the church. In fact, he calls it my church. And in that building, the Lord is the one who adds people to churches. The church equates to unity, being made anew, 
and fellowshipping with other members of the household of God. The church is both visible and invisible. A very easy way to think about this is that we can only see the visible church, whereas God is able to see both. The ecclesia that I can see includes my local church and the people who attend it, as well as all the other churches and people around the world that I can visit or look at pictures of. The invisible church includes all those saints in heaven who serve as a cloud of witnesses. As Hebrews 11, 4-32 mentions specifically, there are many faithful believers of the past who are now enrolled in heaven and worship in the church. By implication, the invisible church is in a very secure position and is immune to corruption. The visible church is actually in a very precarious situation where many savage wolves prey on sheep and false prophets attempt to deceive many. There is no number in the Bible that defines how many people a church must have or where the church operates. Romans 16.5 and 1 Corinthians 16.9 label a church as a gathering in someone's house. In other places, the church refers to the assembly of an entire city, and Acts 9.31 refers to a church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. The New Testament also refers to the church that exists throughout the entire world. Hence, the church is local, regional, global, earthly, and otherworldly. A simpler way of saying this is that the church is local and universal, and the local church is an expression of the universal church. 2. The nature of the church. A biblical understanding of the church's nature will prime your mind to understand what the church is supposed to do. The Apostle Paul uses many metaphors to explain the nature of the church, and a popular label is the Bride of Christ. In Ephesians 5, 31-32, he refers to the relationship between a husband and wife as analogous to Christ and the church. The text says, For this reason a man shall leave his mother and his father, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 2 Corinthians 11:2 also uses similar language. For I am jealous for you with the godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present to you as a pure virgin. Generally speaking, Paul refers to the members of the church as members of a family and encourages believers to treat each other with love that family members have for one another. Using this lens, everyone cares for and looks out for one another, and there is a selfless, sacrificial, and persistent dedication for the growth of others. In 1 Timothy 5, 1-2, Paul says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. The head of this church family is the father who cares for and looks after his children. As his children, we thus are all joined together in the family of God, and the house in which we all live is the church. The New Testament uses many other metaphorical examples to describe the church, including an olive tree, a harvest, branches on a vine, a new temple built upon the cornerstone of Christ, and a pillar and support of the truth, as well as the body of Christ. The generous use of biblical metaphors points directly to the dynamic and broad range of ways to view the church and how our relationship to it ought to look like. 
and the word relationship is intentional because the church is very relational and not merely an impersonal, lifeless institution. For example, the church as the bride of Christ means that as members of a church, we ought to be faithful and committed and graciously submit to the church that seeks to care for, protect, and love believers. Hence, church hopping becomes a sign of unfaithfulness to your spouse, and instead of demanding churches meet our requirements, we ought to ask, how can I better serve my spouse? The church as a pillar and support of the truth means we must diligently work to weed out non-truths and heresy. The church as the body of Christ means we ought to seek out and strive for unity with the common goal of service to Jesus. The church as a temple means it is more than a physical building, but a place to worship the Lord and receive his presence. Of note, Jesus is the true vine that is the church. He is the one who plants churches, grows churches, leads churches as the chief shepherd, is present in churches, and shuts churches down. Paul describes Christ as being the head of the church body, and each member, for example, the ear and the eyes, serves different roles in order to execute proper functioning of the unified whole. Therefore, singular people will do dissimilar things, but each function derives its value as a part of the whole. Again, distinction but not separation. An eye by itself without a brain to interpret the light signal will not work, just as in order for a head to work, you need a neck to support it. If a toe tries to be an ear, or if a hand tries to be an elbow, the results will be disastrous. A portrait of the different gifts given to people in the body of Christ is stated in 1 Corinthians 12. I will now read select passages from that chapter. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. By one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? 
All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. Note the specific gifts given by the Spirit as well as the different job titles that people will have in the service of the body of Christ. As the text says, everything is always done for the common good, which means a gift given by God is to be used in the church and for the church. It is never meant for self-gain, self-promotion, or entrepreneurial endeavors. It is always meant to help other people and direct them towards Jesus. 3. What is the church supposed to do? Knowing what a church is supposed to do is important because in the 21st century, there are many churches that do things antithetical to what the Bible teaches. You could have a dozen nature worshipers, for example, that form a church, or a band of rebellious people who form a quote-unquote church based on false doctrine. So how does a Christian know what a biblical church looks like? One of the most succinct passages that describes what the body of Christ must do is found in Ephesians 4, 1-16. Essentially it describes the unity and maturity in the body of Christ. An excerpt from the NIV reads, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. In essence, many different people playing many different roles work to build up the body of Christ into strong, mature believers who are firm in their beliefs, resistant to false doctrine, and equipped to do good works. These relationships and dynamics are characterized by peace, unity, love, and the common focus of Jesus. So, the first thing a church must do is teach sound Christian doctrine. By implication, that doctrine should also be heard and received by others. John Calvin said that, Wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered, according to Christ's institution, there, it is not to be doubted, a church of God exists. In writing to Titus, a leader in the church, the Apostle Paul tells him, Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. In the same letter, Paul writes that one of the qualifications of a church leader is one who holds fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. 2 Timothy 4, 2-4 says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 1 Timothy 6.3-5 says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, 
He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. If sound Christian doctrine is not taught and preached, essentially what you have is a quote-unquote church based upon a doctrine of human ideology or some other perversion that is not of God. Resultantly, although the label of church is applied, that assembly will be based upon heresy and lead people astray. Paul openly criticized those churches that did have major doctrinal problems that deviated from the word and whose moral principles were also lacking. It is no surprise that those two phenomena went hand in hand. The church at Corinth is a perfect example. Instead of following the word, that church basically did what felt good, and as a result, there were numerous divisions. They relied on worldly wisdom and reason, carnal behaviors. They had susceptibility to false doctrines. People engaged in communion in an unworthy manner. There was drunkenness, participation in pagan rituals. They sacrificed to demons and were being led astray by idols. On the same note, the book of Revelation also speaks of synagogues of Satan. On a different note, the Apostle Paul took great joy in the churches at Thessalonica and Philippi that were based upon strong doctrine and had upstanding characters. The second thing a church must do is administer the sacraments of baptism and communion. Baptism and communion will each be discussed in greater detail in the second series of What Christians Should Know. Essentially, baptism is an outward sign of inward change of a person's new life with Jesus. The baptism thus is a start of relationship between the person and God, and communion is the outward sign and a symbol of the continuance of that relationship. The third thing a church must do is look up and worship God. Paul tells the church at Colossae, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul also says in Ephesians 1, 11-13, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. He tells those at the church in Ephesus to make the most of your time, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. The fourth thing a church must do is look in and nurture believers. In Colossians 1.28, the NIV says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Going back to Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, the NIV says Christ gave us different offices within the church in order to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Many times in the New Testament, nurturing those in the church also involves material help. The fifth thing a church must do is look out and evangelize non-believers. 
In the Great Commission, Jesus told his disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. As Wayne Grudem says, the evangelistic work of declaring the gospel is the primary ministry that the church has toward the world. This evangelism includes proclaiming the gospel, being merciful to all those who would rather not hear it, and being kind and gracious to all people. The Lord Jesus, the head of the church, portrays evangelism in John 4 when he engages the Samaritan woman. In fact, this is the longest recorded conversation Jesus had with anyone in the entire New Testament, and it was with a non-believer, at least initially, a woman and the Samaritan. Jewish men and Samaritan women were like oil and water back in those days. Jesus traveled far out of his way and became wearied in his quest to find this woman, and when he did find her, he defied customary social boundaries to speak frankly to a woman living in sin. Because his act defied expectations and because he took the time to speak with the person who was deemed quote-unquote unclean, look at the extraordinary results. John 4, 28-30 and 39-42 says, So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all the things that I have done. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. In analyzing, looking up, in, and out, it is important to understand that the whole interprets the part, and all angles of vision have to be treated equally. For example, a church that does not look up to God can cast their eyes on an idol, therefore nurturing their congregants with tainted milk, leading to spiritual sickness. A lack of sound doctrine will lead to superficial believers who may then evangelize but not be able to effectively minister to others whose degree of scrutiny exceeds the comprehension of the missionary. And superficial believers will be very susceptible to changing tides, wavering between opinions and shaking like reeds in the wind. Too much emphasis on looking in without looking out will raise up strong disciples, but those disciples will never get out of the building. Subsequently, speaking metaphorically about the body of Christ, it now becomes very clear that as a unified church, some body parts will do much more of one thing, for example, singers who lead worship, pastors who teach, and missionaries who evangelize. And each of these groups, as a result, will do very little of other things because different parts have different functions. The unified body serves a grander function than the individual parts. The sixth thing a church must do is strive for unity and purity in the things that it does. Under the banners of unity and purity, the list of specific requirements that a church must execute is very long, but the point is that every member of a church has to be on the same general page, and the things they must do must be effective. So, it makes no sense if ABC Church looks up, in, and out very well, and routinely performs baptisms and communions, but the married pastor is sleeping with the choir director, and the evangelists routinely get drunk in order to fellowship with non-believers. So in pursuit of unity and purity, 
the church also seeks to admonish and teach everyone with all wisdom so that believers may fully mature in Christ, not only to teach sound doctrine, but to equip its members to refute false doctrine, have qualified leadership, silence teachers of false doctrine, maintain the purity of the Christian faith, execute the sacraments of baptism and communion properly, execute church discipline to correct those who deviate from proper conduct, effectively worship, effectively witness, properly govern the church, demonstrate spiritual power in the ministries of the church, promote personal holiness, care for those without, build up the church, and of course, love Jesus. The unity of the church is something that is very valuable because there are an innumerable number of forces at play that seek to divide and destroy the church. Jude says there are rebellious people who actually set out to split up the church. In Jude 1.19 it says, These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Of course, all of these activities apply to the visible church and not the invisible church. And in the quest for church purity, it becomes very clear that everything centers around Jesus. A church that suggests an answer to a problem that is not Jesus or that Christ is not the head of the church, then what is supposed to be a house of faith has now turned into a house of human ideology. In that house, man-made prescriptions are given for behavioral change, personal improvement, or outlets of socialization are given that does not involve the Lord at all. To conclude, as I hope it has now become clear, the biblical formulation for church stands in stark contrast to what many in 21st century America have accepted as a formal definition. It goes without saying that no church will excel in all of its functions all the time, but modern churches have often confused what is distinguishing from what is central. That is, although a church may do something very well, that is something to be noted, but if that excellence happens at the expense of other functions that are central to the church, then the church has ceased to do what the Bible says it should. For example, if a church has a wonderful music ministry, then that is a wonderful thing. But if in its distinction, that church places its resources in music and worship at the expense of sound doctrine and evangelism, then the church's central functions will suffer. This also speaks directly to the modern fascination of church marketing that actually uses business techniques in order to promote the church to certain demographics and market segments by engineering programs and activities to attract certain cohorts. God is the only person who plants, builds, leads, runs, and adds members to a church. Resultantly, planning and vision become a function of what we can do in order to materialize a yet-to-be-determined future and recruit more customers. In this dynamic, the congregants are being attracted to things that are appealing to them, so once those big flashing lights go away, attendance plummets. The focus shifts away from learning sound doctrine, praising God, and spreading the good news to others, and instead becomes a matter of personal fulfillment. I hope you have enjoyed this lesson, and please join us in a few weeks for Part 9, The Christian Life and Regeneration. As always, if you have any questions, please email us at dlcfchurch at gmail.com. Again, that's dlcfchurch at gmail.com. 
be sure to put WCSK in all caps in the subject line. We hope to hear from you and God bless.